The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome back, everyone. Um, maybe some of you noticed in the email, I said it was week four, but it's actually week five. And we go until that first Monday in November. And for the last half of this course, we're going to be studying the factors of awakening. And actually, it's, it's really should be, hopefully will be, um, it's a really beautiful study. Of, of course, we can ruin anything <laughs> by trying too hard. We're not trying hard enough, you know, not being full of heart in our in our work, you know, and everyone's life is a little different, your duties and responsibilities, you have more or less time, depending, but just like uh, mindfulness as one of the seven factors, just like hopefully you had a sense tonight that in fact it isn't something that you or I have to create, the capacity, the seed of awareness, the activity of awareness is there. And the most potent way to support and feed, develop that quality of mindfulness is to recognize it. Like even now, the mind is conscious and can the mindfulness, the capacity for mindfulness recognize that there's knowing. Now, the only way we know knowing is we know what knowing is knowing, right? Like, this is being known. Seeing, for me, as a predominant experience right now, is being known. And if there's a little self-consciousness, that emotion of self-consciousness is being known. It doesn't really matter. What matters is this reflective knowing, what we call mindful awareness, And interestingly, in the tradition, you know, even the Buddha himself and the other monks and lay people, their appreciation of these factors of awakening was such that, I think I maybe mentioned this week one, but when people were sick, this is what they would chant around those folks. It it had, you know, at least they, they imagined it had a sort of curative effect. And so at the very least, what I, you know, for homework, um, my very strong recommendation is one that you memorize this list of seven wholesome, beautiful factors. Mindfulness, the investigation or interest, it's investigation of the way it is. That it, it, it involves some wisdom, like we know how to avoid uh, interest sort of being deflected into mental proliferation. So any thoughts in, uh, in the investigation is bringing the awareness to the present moment. So there's mindfulness, investigation, energy, the energy of persistence, inspired energy, not like trudging, I got to energy or effort, 
by John Cillian and upliftment, which unifies the mind and the experience of joy, rapture, is the next one. And those three, the mindfulness is the balancing factor, and those three are the energizing, investigation, energy or effort, and joy, joyful interest, that unify the mind that is unified. And it, and it just, uh, you remember, we talk about it, especially like in learning it in a linear way, but it's not a linear function. I mean, there's different ways to sort of experience these factors alive in your heart and mind. Holographic, they're all kind of arising together, supporting each other, or circular. But like anything in nature, you know, it has its own sort of beautiful interdependent dance. You know, when I was a kid and then later as an elementary school teacher, we would, I would teach the water cycle because I, for a while I was teaching third and fourth grade. It's sort of the, one of the things you teach, you know, evaporation, clouds, rain, you know, it's just all the, the reverberations of the water cycle. It's a pretty significant and we always talk about it in this linear way, right? But it isn't really that way. That's just a way to help us understand conditionality by cause and effect. That the actual activity of cause and effect is so vast and complex and you know, it's just like A needs to B. That's not how it works. But it really is a helpful way of understanding it. So when we talk about the seven factors in this sort of way, like how, you know, that recognition that this is being known, recognizing mindfulness, really allows the interest, like, oh yeah, there's a present moment. Because what investigation is all about is understanding it matters. Like, I want to learn cause and effect here what's skillful, what's unskillful. And, and really, the, it all comes down, like what investigation reveals is how I pay attention, what I pay attention to is impactful. A lot of what we do is just sort of can't help ourselves, you know, given the way we're conditioned. So it turns out, you know, when we start paying attention that the most karmically potent thing we do is the choice of how we pay attention and what we pay attention to. It doesn't occur to us how impactful that is. We might think, no, the most impactful thing is I went to the refrigerator and I ate way too much of, you know, this, or I, you know, I, or I was good, you know, and I felt the inclination to spend hours on the internet, but I didn't. And we might think, oh, that was the most impactful thing. But actually, whatever activity there was, was uh, affected very much by what we paid attention to and the kind of understanding that was there in the mind when we were paying attention to those various things. And that's what the investigation of Dhamma, the second factor of awakening, really reveals, is that it matters. And I would really emphasize those first two this week. Like, do the contemplation we did during the guided sit, 
where all you're doing, the meditation object is, we're keeping in mind the capacity for mindfulness. And we're catching ourselves when we're trying to do it, you know, focusing on the present moment or whatever we do, like keeping that breath in mind. And it's, it's understandable and there can be reasons to do that, like when our mind is really all over the place and we're, the attention is drawn back into our problems, mental proliferation over and over again, it can be really useful to kind of put a stake in the ground and my attention goes right there to kind of break the spell of destructiveness, you know, obsessive thinking. So there's reason to, uh, all kinds of reasons to develop that mental muscle of focusing. But just make sure we understand it's not mindfulness, it's the mental muscle of focusing, bringing the attention to an object and holding it there. Now, of course, it's related to mindfulness because when we have a focused attention on the breath, for example, and we encourage everything to relax, then we might notice that breathing in or breathing out is being known. That's the mindfulness, not the being focused on the breath, but the awareness that that knowing of the breath is being known. You see, it's subtle, which makes it really hard to keep in mind because almost more than anything, our mind is freely used to things that are gross. Like sense experience is relatively gross. But the inner workings of the heart and mind, obviously that's relatively subtle. So, but we can, the mind can get trained. You know, it's just amazing when you see athletes and brilliant artists and brilliant scientists and whatever, how, like, how their mind has been trained to keep in mind very subtle things and to kind of follow whatever it might be, you know, that is part of their craft or their, their art or their science or whatever it is that they have a lot of confidence in. So to, as a Dharma practitioner, somebody interested in the way it is and interested in more and more freedom and wisdom and love, then we're following our teacher, the Buddha, who's saying, you know, in particular, keeping the seven factors in mind is really potent. As the Buddha says, it's sort of, the mind then slopes to Nibbana. I like that. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, because it's never about you and I doing it, it's always about supporting natural processes. Awakening is also an impersonal, natural process that can get supported or not, depending on what we're paying attention to and how we're paying attention. So we have mindfulness, which is realizing, oh, that the moment is being known. That just gets us in the game, right? Keep the present moment in mind. And then investigation is really this comprehension of what's skillful and unskillful, which is the one thing when the mind is present, that it's going to be naturally interested in. How might I be setting emotion stress, be putting my hand on a hot stove, oh, putting my hand, oh yeah, I don't think that's helping. You know, or doing something, being in a way that seems to be loosening things up, lightening things up. 
And then the effort, the third quality, I'll try to get through all seven just as an overview point. Effort then, the third quality is the heart feels inspired. It's willing to work because it recognizes the significance of what's skillful and unskillful. It's like that inspired, that um, being inspired to persist, to persist at what's helpful. Because we, the investigation leads to some beginning sense of what's helpful and not helpful. So then the heart, no longer so helpless, feels inspired to be wholehearted. Oh yeah, I really will keep this in mind. I really will keep doing this work of feeding what's wholesome and starving what isn't helpful. Weakening it by how I pay attention to it. So when I do see anger, I notice how it's not helpful. Or I skillfully choose to bring loving kindness to mind to help weaken the grip that anger has in my mind. Or any number of other skillful means that we might do to starve what isn't helpful, be support what's helpful. And so that's that inspired energy, the willingness to persist. And the more we persist, like even there's a little feedback loop, right? We persist, we persist at being mindful in a way that supports the investigation of the way it is, about what's helpful and not helpful, skillful and not skillful, more inspired energy. So that's even, there's, I mean, there's all kinds of loops going on here, feedback loops. But as that, process wraps up, the mind starts to get unified, gathers in what is a very wholesome process. You know, being present with the way it is, and in particular being present in the way it is in terms of what's helpful and not helpful. What supports a greater stability of present moment awareness. What supports the preventing and abandoning of what's not helpful. And as that, all those sort of loops get ahead of steam, the mind begins to unify, and that's experienced as rapture, joy. The mind, the heart gets bright. It can actually be really uh, impactful waves of bliss sometimes, especially if you're on retreat and you have fewer distractions and the practice gets a lot of momentum. You can really feel like uh, waves of delight enjoy that, it's like better than any drugs, better than any, you know, sense experience. It's really nice feelings. I remember that my first three-month retreat um, at IMS, at some meditation society in, in Massachusetts, there was a period of time during that retreat, well, it's just, I, you know, we always misunderstand. It's like, Oh, I knew this practice was good. Because I did. I had some intuition all along. For, I had been practicing for, you know, quite a while already. You know, 15 years before my first three-month retreat or something like that. And uh, so I had a lot of confidence. And it was like, oh yeah. It just felt so good. Like I wasn't really touching the ground. Just a lot of kind of champagne bubbles everywhere. Just, it's so easy. Because... Everything was pleasant, you know, to be aware, just a lot of delight. And of course, when there's a lot of that 
nice experience of joy, then contentment really settles in. It's a more resonant release in the heart, like, oh, I've always wanted things to be so joyful. And then that ease of tranquility, the contentment of tranquility, the settledness of tranquility really kicks in. And that feeling settled allows the, the mind to really seclude, the mind really like is willing to withdraw from sense experience because this inner experience of tranquility is very strong. So the attention goes to that and the mind really retreats from sense experience. We, the ears still hear, the eyes still see, you know, skin still feels, touches, but the mind isn't interested. The mind's interested in this inner sense of tranquility. And so that seclusion, like the mind being disinterested in sense experience, it really stabilizes the awareness because when I'm interested, fixated, attending to all the you know diversity of sights and sounds and touches and all the thoughts I have about sense experience, you know, every time I think of any one of you who I know, it's like there's a response. And every time I see your t-shirt or your sweater or your this or your that, right, our ordinary level of the mind has a response about everything, <laughs> an opinion, even really silly things. Do I like this floor or not? And that's agitating, but when the mind secludes, not by shutting down the senses, but just by unifying in this inner sense around the peace and tranquility, contentment of a mind that's not disturbed, it kind of, uh, the, the concentration really deepens, and there's a, you know, depending on how deep the concentration goes, a really powerful stillness or silence or quiet that manifests as, it's like a, the heart for a while will have immunity, like not touched by its likes and dislikes and the dis disturbing or agitating effects of all the likes and dislikes that I have. It's secluded from that. So it feels that peace of not being agitated by my likes and dislikes. And that really opens the heart to a kind of balance. Now the balance, the equanimity comes because the heart is retreated. So again, we're talking about these seven factors in a, a linear way just so we can get a sense of them and how they support each other. And of course, when there's a lot of balance, a lot of equanimity, not uh, reactive to the pleasantness and unpleasantness of any sense experience, then that really, it really allows us to recognize mindful awareness, that capacity to be present, to be aware of what's being known. And that really supports investigation and really strengthens that inspired energy and really helps 
the mind to unify in this um, presence, this profound presence that sees things as they are, which tranquilizes the heart and allows the concentration to deepen, uh, supporting even deeper states of balance and equanimity, supporting the mindfulness and and on and on. Like I, I try to suggest, there's so many little feedback loops going all around here. Interestingly, one of my teachers, Saito Utejaniya, I read a quote from him earlier, he talks about actually, like, as a practitioner, we're really only sort of in an egoic sense, for lack of a better word, like in a willful sense, we're only really engaging the first three the intention to be mindful, the intention to investigate the way it is, the intention to be wholehearted in our persistence with what we're finding to be helpful. But we're not just randomly making effort. The, the inspired effort comes from seeing that the effort is helpful. And what is the effort? To continue to investigate what's helpful and not helpful what's skillful and unskillful, how to plant seeds of release, how to stop planting seeds of distraction and agitation and greed, hatred and delusion. Because if we, if we really, that's why this initial study for these next couple of weeks of these first three is, because uh, it, it just, it sets in motion the joy, the tranquility, the concentration, and the equanimity. And it's so wonderful to, like a lot of the way Venerable Analyo, another one of my teachers, teaches, uh, because the Buddha brings in the seven factors awakening in a lot of the different teachings that he offered way back then, 2,500 years ago or so. But in this sort of more subtle end of practice, right? Just knowing the seven factors, in a way it's like calling upon the seven factors, affects the quality of the mind. So one thing we'll do, um, especially uh, in a a couple weeks, we'll settle in in the best way we can. one of the powerful ways, I don't know how it was for you tonight, but keeping mindfulness in mind, as I was sort of suggesting in the guided meditation tonight, can be surprisingly a very potent way to clear the mind of the hindrances. You know, if you're sleepy or you're restless or you got a lot of wanting going on or a lot of aversion left over from the day or spinning in doubt, just to, it's a, it's hard because it's subtle, but if, if you have enough momentum or capacity to recognize there is mindfulness here, I don't know, because I see its nature operating right now in the mind, in the heart, in the moment. And then just to keep that in mind, keep it in mind, keep it in mind, you'll see that the mind is, will be very quickly cleared of the hindrances. And one of the things I thought would be good to talk about tonight in the small groups, and without being too pushy, I just want to remind everyone, even if you really don't want to do it, 
It's part of the commitment to being in the class. And it's okay, just be real with the two people in your small group, you know. May turn, have, find some way for that small community, that three of you for 20 minutes or so, to be really productive and useful in your practice. And I'll give some suggestions like, to simply, in your two or three minutes, your turn to just reflect in front of the other two people in your small group. Just reflect about moments in your life where the mind seemed overrun by the hindrances. And of course, if we're reporting how it is when my mind is overrun, it wasn't completely overrun because to some degree we were aware because we're reporting on it, right? So there was some reflective awareness, oh yeah, this is the mind when it's overrun by greed or by greed and restlessness or by hatred and doubt or, you know, because it could be a multiple hindrance attack. So that's one thing you could share. And then, but even more important, if, you, um, if you're willing, is that you can, you know, even begin the reflection now to bring to mind for the, your small group moments, whether it's in a sit or just in your life sometime, in daily life, when the mind was recognized as being relatively free of the agitating, distorting effects of the hindrances. Remember, wanting, not wanting, too little energy, dullness, sleepiness, too much energy, restlessness and worry, and the unhelpful kind of doubt, where there's sort of spinning leading to more spinning. So, that's such a, the Puddha praises this as a topic of conversation, like, what is your experience of the mind not oppressed by the hindrances? When did that, you know, relatively speaking, when do you experience the mind, the heart, relatively free, not oppressed, not distorted by these hindering habits of wanting or not wanting, dullness, restlessness, or doubt. And just as best we can, just unpack those moments. And as you're unpacking, because you know what wisdom, the reason you know we do this is we can not just you, but the people who are listening to what you're saying, we're, un, we're unpacking, we're deconstructing it in real time. I mean, as best we can, even as a listener. Like, in what that person is saying, what might have been the supporting causes for that mind to be relatively free of the hindrances? You know? And then, if you, you're the one who's talking, then if you, if you have some thoughts about that, then say that, like, what was there? Because that's what wisdom does, it's interested in causes. Oh yeah, there was this, when there's this, there wasn't that. Those kind of cause and effect or correlation. So what's there when the mind is overrun by the hindrance? Remember the image, I think I shared, if not last week, one of the earlier weeks of the that they used at the time. You know, and you gotta, if you haven't seen these trees, these huge banyan trees that are basically start off by overtaking, you know, a big tropical tree. 
a little bird poops a little seed on the branch of a big existing tree, and another bird does it, and these vines start to grow, right? The air is moist enough. They just start to grow right on the limbs of big trees. Eventually, they are big enough, they can drop roots to the ground, and very slowly, they encircle the entire tree, take it over. And, and they have all these sort of roots that have dropped down, and they can get quite thick over you know, decades, probably. And uh, that's the image the Buddha uses for the hindrances. I love it because it's scary. It's like they make a really good, really good horror film. You know, just that, that sort of persistence of these parasites to kind of take advantage get what they want. And uh, we, we want to respect them. So just to kind of, um, it's such a gift to each other to share, like, what is that like when my mind is overrun? And, you know, in real time, talk about how the nature of the hindrance is to plant seeds for more hindrances. Because that's, whatever one of the five, that's the very nature of a hindrance, is it's, capacity to replicate, deepen and spread and establish itself. And, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, those of you who have been around for a while, like I feel I have, now in my 60s, it's like our tendencies get a little bit more ossified the older we get. You know, and if we've allowed these sort of tendencies to flourish in our mind for six decades, it's a lot harder to sort of say, you know, I don't think you're very helpful, and I'm going to do my sincere best to stop watering you, and instead to weaken you, to starve you, and to feed something different than you, right? But it's, it's like that old proverb, you know, the best time to have planted a tree, you know, maybe several decades ago, second best time is now. <laughs> so even if we haven't done it, you know, so we've let some not-so-helpful seeds, tendencies flourish. This is the time. So to just share that in your small group, and then to really, you know, and then after each person is shared, to really spend most of your time reflecting together about a mind, our mind, our hearts, relatively not encircled with the hindrances relatively free. When were those moments? Really, uh, don't let yourself off the hook. Well, I've never had those moments. Because the hindrances, as tenacious as they are, they come and go. There isn't, you know, this is the thing about the mind. There are these very strong tendencies in our mind. But whatever, however strong a particular tendency is, it arises and ceases. It isn't always there. And you know, we've all had the experience of being really caught in hate, right? And then something switches, and there's a pretty pure love. And 10 seconds before, when we were really caught up in the hate, if someone had asked us, we would, with a lot of confidence, have said, no, 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 I'm totally immersed in this hatred this is just who I am. It would have been kind of unthinkable that it could evaporate in a moment and there'd be a very poignant, trustworthy love. 
But it's true, we see it in others and we see it in ourselves. Whatever of these hindrances the mind is really locked up in, it ends. And it's like parents know this. They see their kid, you know, totally entrenched in some like revenge fantasy for one of their siblings. And they're just like totally body, mind, unified in their hatred of their you know, younger sibling or whatever it is. And then it's gone. And this is the thing that we, we, we want to remember because not only is it nice when it goes, but it teaches us something about, it gives us confidence that as solid and self that it looks when I'm, my mind is overrun by these hindrances, it's never as solid or as real as it appears. And that really keeps us in the game as a practitioner. We don't give up. One, it doesn't, it isn't skillful to give up. <laughs> and it's not, like as big as those banyan trees are, they're not actually as solid as they appear to be, or as personal. And it really has to do with understanding what wisdom is. Wisdom is really a universal solvent. Nothing can withstand wisdom. And the reason is, you know, this is a little bit philosophical, but it's a constructed world. Wisdom understands that. So however powerful the construction, like the edifice our mind is created, this is how it is. Wisdom understands that that construction Depends on causes and conditions when they're not, those supporting causes aren't there, it ceases. So it's not impressed. Wisdom isn't impressed with constructions. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org